0: How will the COVID-19 crisis shape the future of energy? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. After decades of relying on imported oil, the United States achieved the unthinkable and became the world's largest producer. Production has doubled over the past decade, and in February reached its highest level ever, 13 million barrels a day. But as it turns out, all of that overabundance has led to a different kind of oil crisis.
1: They have basically drilled their way into financial hell, where they, there's obviously zero coordination. So everybody's just producing more and more oil. And it's, there's too much oil in the world before demand dropped off a cliff.
0: Amy Harder covers energy and climate change for Axios and is a former reporter with The Wall Street Journal. What does the sudden plunge in oil prices bode for the economy? Jason Bordoff, a White House energy advisor to President Obama and founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, has a fairly dire prediction. So you're going to see
2: U.S. shale production, uh, which is 13 million, probably down something like 3 million by the end of the year. Hundreds of thousands of people in oil producing states, Oklahoma, Texas, North Dakota, uh, et
0: cetera, uh, losing their jobs. My guests today include Jason Bordoff and Amy Harder, along with two other experts, Scott Jacobs, CEO and co-founder of Generate Capital, and Julia Piper, co-host and producer of the Political Climate podcast and contributing editor at Green Tech Media. They're all joining me from their homes to talk about the future of energy. What will be the lasting impact of the COVID-19 recession? How will this reshape use of clean energy sources in the years to come? Let's start with the current nail-biter, U.S. oil prices. Past presidents have counted on cheap gas prices in election years to help usher them back into the White House. By contrast, the current president has been talking up the price of oil. What does the plummeting market mean for the industry and for our economy? Jason Bordoff offers his perspective.
2: Yeah, it's pretty extraordinary for President Trump, uh, not well, any president in election year to celebrate higher gasoline prices. This one in particular, because he spent most of his presidency complaining about gasoline prices not being low enough and has a long history of attacking OPEC. We've seen this unprecedented collapse in oil prices and in oil demand, obviously a result of putting the economy on hold to deal with the pandemic. 30 million barrels a day, that's 30 percent of global uh, oil demand, just wiped out in April prices falling. And the United States, you know, a decade ago was importing 60% of our oil. Now we are on the cusp of being a net oil uh, exporter. So we basically stopped importing any oil at all. And what that means is an oil price spike or an oil price crash hits our economy differently today than it did before. It st- still saves consumers money at the pump, although if you're not driving that much anyway because people are on lockdown, it doesn't help them as much. But you're going to see more negative impacts in different states that produce oil for, for workers in those industries. And that'll be larger today than was the case 10 years ago.
0: And we'll get into that a little a little more later, how oil is a bigger part of our domestic economy. Uh, Amy Harder, first, I, w- I want to ask you about a Bette Midler tweet that you told me about that, that kind of captures this moment. What did Bette Midler tweet?
1: Yeah, well, I'm a Bette Midler fan, so I, I noticed her tweet. And the other day, she tweeted something along the lines of, I feel like I'm 16 again, grounded, and I can't go out and drive. And, you know, that's... Uh, kind of the public sentiment of the vast majority of the world, which is not the oil industries, all of us kind of find it a little funny that gasoline prices are going through the toilet and we're all mostly stuck at home. So uh, this is a historic collapse uh, in the industry, as Jason said, but most people don't really care. And, you know, the oil industry has never been a sector that exactly gendered, you know, goodwill and sympathy, Um, But uh, because of the incredible growth in oil production and gas over the last decade, it is a bigger part of our economy. But as long as we have people like Bette Midler tweeting jokes about the oil industry in crisis, I think it's going to be hard to really convey to people that this is a crisis, unlike, say, if gasoline and oil prices were, were skyrocketing.
0: We're hearing that that oil is a bigger part of the American American economy, but Amy Harder, energy is a shrinking part of the S and P five hundred. The value of energy stocks is a smaller part of uh, Wall Street than it was was ten years ago. So help us understand how it's bigger and smaller at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, I think an important part to understand about this Corona crisis, in particular, is that the oil and gas industry was not doing very well before this crisis. I had done a, a column several weeks ago, I suppose. A couple of months ago, at this point, and the headline was, "We're producing more oil and gas than ever, and this industry stocks are tanking." And that was because they have basically drilled their way into financial hell, where they there's not a lot of there's obviously zero coordination, so everybody's just producing more and more oil, and it's there's just there's too much oil in the world before demand dropped off a cliff, and so there's been a big financial headache within, particularly producers and the United States and Texas and other places in the Permian Basin. And so that's why even though the industry is producing more than ever, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're doing well financially. And that's a disconnect that I think people don't quite understand.
0: Another disconnect where people talk about energy. There's, there's, as you all know well, there's the liquid fuels, transportation for cars and planes, and there's the, the, the power side, the electricity side. Uh, Scott Jacobs, Fatih Beryl, who's heads of the International Energy Association, said that only renewables are holding up well in this time. So let's move to the, the power side, the electricity side. How are renewables being affected by
3: this? Well, in general, people still need their power. And whether they're at home or they're at work, they're consuming it. And as we all know, turning off your power is not really an option for for businesses or consumers. Uh, And so paying your power bill is also something that people don't think of as an optional idea. Um, And we have continued to need power, whether or not we're driving around in cars, partly because we don't have enough electric cars that would be taking the power and propelling us with mobility. But uh, in general, what we're seeing is the power demand is still pretty high. And we've seen over the last 10 years an increasing amount of that power supplied by renewable electricity here in the U.S. Um, And that has, has no signs of abating. It is the cheapest form of power. For two thirds of the world's population. And so the new capacity additions that we're seeing in terms of power sector growth is increasingly renewable power capacity and has already been the majority of new power capacity built over the last decade because of the economics.
0: Julia Piper, I want to bring in the human connection here because often uh, we talk a lot about uh energy it gets very abstract. Uh you know, you've been re- reporting on the connection between African American communities and and COVID and and energy. So tell us about that connection
4: yeah well it's so easy and important to focus on the industries at play here a lot of wealth is being moved around and lost and jobs etc but there's also a very human impact tied to this part of it's that I think the latest stat is around a million African Americans or people of color live near oil and gas facilities and a Harvard study came out recently showing that people in those areas are disproportionately uh, subject or disproportionately vulnerable to upper respiratory illnesses like the coronavirus and indeed we are seeing death rates in those communities being much higher than in other areas. So there is a link here between oil and gas, what we're talking about from an industry perspective and then how it plays out through this coronavirus crisis and how it's affecting human lives right now.
0: Jason Bordoff, you know, there's been uh, more people working in in the industry, as you mentioned before. I've seen numbers of like 10 million people, direct and indirect, Um, and and who's being hurt by this? I mean, obviously, energy is is a boom and bust. This is nothing new, but it may be different in terms of magnitude or how much it's hurting Americans.
2: Yeah, it is different given that the United States is producing 13 million barrels a day. We produced about 5 million in 2008. So this is just a huge increase in employment uh, in the sector. And the scale, the magnitude, and the rapidity, as Amy said, of this of this of this collapse is really unprecedented. So to lose 30 percent of global oil demand that quickly, uh, it's normally you would see prices fall, people would stop investing, start to have some declines in production. We don't have enough places physically to store all of this oil that was being produced, and so what we needed to do around the world was have prices go low enough that it gave people an incentive to just shut in production in the middle of a well producing, stop it, and the, and. And if you look at the 10 million barrels a day of highest cost supply in the world, that's about 10 percent, there's 100 million consumed in the world, 40 percent of that is in North America. So you're seeing the United States and you're seeing Canada uh, get get hit particularly hard. So you're going to see U.S. shale production, uh, which you said was 13 million, probably down something like 3 million by the end of the year hundreds of thousands of people in oil-producing states, Oklahoma, Texas, North Dakota, uh, etc., uh, losing their job. And I think, as Amy said a minute ago, one important point there was this was already a sector that had fallen out of disfavor because of political and social pressures around DSG concerns and because they weren't that profitable for some, many of them uh, recently anyway. Uh, Shale after this will not look the same as shale before this. It will still be there. It will still be a large contributor to global oil supply. It will still grow every year, but you're talking maybe a couple hundred thousand barrels a day, not one or one and a half million barrels per day per year, uh, in part because you're going to see more difficulty accessing capital for uh,
0: some production that
2: probably wasn't economic in the first place.
0: Amy Harder, does that what does that mean for the kind of oil industry that the United States is going to going to have? Is it going to be smaller? Is it going to be more more consolidated with, with larger companies that buy up little ones during the during the crisis? What's this going to mean?
1: Yeah, well, coronavirus for all industries really. It's less about one industry versus another, and it's more about big versus little. So you know the big restaurants are doing fine, and the little guys are struggling. The big airlines are doing better, and the smaller airlines are doing worse the very same, probably even to a more critical degree in the oil and gas industry. It's the smaller companies, more domestic focus that are probably going out of business. We've already had a few bankruptcies. And so I think overall, the industry from consumer's perspective won't change a lick. We'll go to the gasoline station and for the next at least six to nine months, prices at the pump will be quite cheap. Although um, in a few years' time, it could be quite high because of this downturn. But behind the scenes, the industry will be more consolidated. And I think there's an open question. And I think you've seen some big global oil companies, particularly those in Europe, like BP and Shell, really recommit their commitments to clean energy, a small portion of of their capital, but nonetheless, their goals on clean energy. And I think given... How low oil prices have gone and the volatility that the industry has experienced, I think for some, it could change the industry to be more, even more open to uh, renewables, which although they may not have historically gotten the returns that oil and gas have, that it's far more stable, which says a lot. And I think that's one reason why investors are, have been pulling out of oil and gas.
4: Greg, could I offer a little bit of a a doubt in here for a moment? There was some um, Apple data on mobile devices and and who's moving on what mode of transit and car use is already spiking. So while I guess we have to separate, I guess, the consumer usage of the fuel and then the Difficulty in the industry itself, because you could actually see a big rebound in the relatively near term of of fossil fuel and gasoline use. And another stat that kind of shines a light on this is even amid shutting down global economies and the turmoil in the oil sector, uh, there was only an 8% or an expected 8% decline in emissions this year, according to the IEA. The world has to achieve an 8% emissions decline every year for the next decade, and even shutting down the economy didn't do that. So if your goal is decarbonization, fuel use and where that fuel comes from and the carbon intensity of it is going to be a continuing issue, even amid the current um, economic turmoil we're seeing right now.
0: Scott Jacobs, I get chills when I hear numbers like that, that if we got to do this year after year after year, what is that? Can we do it? I, I just... I, I get you know stopped in my tracks when I hear that the, that magnitude screeching the global economy to a halt, and that's the kind of thing we need year after year.
3: Yeah, it's a daunting challenge to think about solving climate change or bending the curve sufficiently to avoid catastrophic effects of it. I think we all know how energy plays one of many roles in that equation, and as much as we're making in a, a tremendous amount of progress with what people call the energy transition, where you're taking a dirty energy supply and replacing it with a clean energy supply, a lower carbon energy supply, it is not, we're not seeing the same progress in a lot of the other sources of emissions becoming decarbonized, whether it's the transportation sector we're talking about now, the agricultural sector we're talking about, or perhaps most importantly, industry and buildings where we have not found better ways to decarbonize those um, emission sources uh, in the same way that we've found economically driven ways to decarbonize power, right? So the energy transition that most people talk about is really about power. And we're going from dirty sources of, of power generation like coal to cleaner sources like wind and solar. And that transition is underway and it's unequivocal and it's unabated because the economics drive it. But when you start thinking about thermal processes like cement production or aluminum or steel, and you think about the building sector and the need to heat buildings, which we use natural gas primarily for, you start seeing just how daunting the problem is given the time scale. That folks like the UN and others tell us we need to act against.
0: Jason Bordoff, so that what I hear there is that, you know, GDP equals energy equals emissions, and we're not just nothing structurally changing right now. People are gonna hop back in their cars, we're gonna go back to where we were, and there's not really any climate progress coming out of this. Uh, i'm 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 worried about that I mean I don't disagree with anything that that you said or that Julia said a minute ago,
2: so I made the comment that I think shale will be taken down a peg that that's not the same as saying we're making progress toward deep decarbonization in any sense of the word i think as as I think Amy said uh there is a scenario we don't know exactly how quickly the economy will recover. The International Energy Agency, the Energy Information Administration, both say oil demand will be back to their pre-COVID levels by pretty close to there by the end of the year. Maybe it takes longer than that if we have a second wave. Unfortunately, there's possibility there. But within a year or two, I think we will be back pretty close uh, to where we were before. And as you just heard, you know, 30, 4.2 billion people around the world are under lockdown. And this year, emissions will be down, according to the IEA, 5.5 percent. That's a pretty sobering reminder of how hard it is to decarbonize the world for all the reasons uh, that that you just heard, and and as um, as Scott said, you know the history, the history of energy has actually not been one of transitions. It's been one of additions. Where if you look at this on a scale of zero to one hundred percent, we see these great shifts from wood to coal to oil to gas and now renewables. But if you look at it not as a share of the total, but in total BTUs, total metric total amount of energy, we just keep adding to the stack of meeting growing global energy demand with new and increasingly cleaner forms of energy. Uh, But meeting the climate challenge, because carbon math, you know, once a ton is up there, it's going to be up there for a long time, means not just meeting incremental growth in energy demand with new and cleaner sources of energy, but replacing the 80% of our energy mix that comes from hydrocarbons. And 80% hasn't changed in 30 years. It's been 80% for the last 30 years, even as the amount of energy used, the denominator in that 80% has
0: gotten bigger and bigger. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about reducing carbon emissions and expanding clean energy. Coming up, building the green workplace of the future. Should we even bother?
1: I think it's just a step too far removed to try to make the argument that buildings need to be more energy efficient in this new world. You know, companies might be looking to invest less in their buildings and more in
0: telework opportunities. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of the energy industry in a post-pandemic world. My guests are Julia Piper of the Political Climate Podcast, Scott Jacobs of Generate Capital, Amy Harder with Axios, and Jason Bordoff of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. When the worst of the COVID-19 crisis is over, fortunate people will return to their workplaces, but they may look and feel very different. Chris Rawlings is founder and CEO of Veteran LED. It's a lighting and energy company based in Richmond, Virginia, which services commercial and industrial businesses. Rawlings has an optimistic take on the industry's future, which is directly linked to the after effects of the coronavirus pandemic.
5: I think the health of the inhabitants of these buildings is obviously going to be a focal point moving forward because of the impact of COVID-19 and indoor air quality and just healthy environments, interior and exterior that surround these buildings, that kind of falls into environmental and sustainability initiatives as well. I think you're going to see a lot of projects move forward now based on how comfortable they make that business owner or that building owner feel about having their customers and their employees return to that building and that building being in tip-top shape. So they're minimally exposed to any future virus pandemics. And I think people are going to start looking at different technologies that are proven, that have been out there a while, and saying, yeah, we, we need to start adopting these technologies and start implementing these procedures because you can't put a cost on someone's life.
0: That was Chris Rawlings, founder and CEO of Veteran LED, a lighting and energy management company in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, Scott Jacobs, you are very optimistic about the, the path for electrifying buildings, and, and you were seemed to be nodding there when he was talking about uh, the way we approach buildings will be different after COVID. Comfort and can energy efficiency be part of that to electrify buildings, which we know is a big part of uh, that hasn't been tackled yet?
3: Yeah, so first of all, I couldn't agree more with the comments that he was making about the motivations for building owners and occupiers uh, needing to respond to uh, the crisis with a healthier environment for employees and healthier air quality, both inside and outside buildings. I, I do think a lot of what he's saying is that there is a growing attention to the concept of resilience. And we've used the word sustainability a lot in these circles when we talk about clean energy, when we talk about climate change. Um, but really what we should be talking about is resilience. And whether it's COVID or whether it's climate change or whether it's sh- macroeconomic shocks of other forms, companies are making better and better decisions about how to be resilient to those exogenous forces. And clean energy is one such measure. Um, certainly you can see the economics compelling people in addition to the desire to be resilient to these shocks. When you think about something like LEDs, they are simply cheaper to use than the alternative. And while he's right that capital expenditures are often a challenging barrier to sale for things like LEDs and other energy efficiency measures, there are a lot of financial services players like Generate out there solving that problem. We take the capital risk and we take the operational risk so that customers don't have to. And there are a lot of ways that customers don't have to actually make a capital expenditure in order to get the benefits of either more resilience or cheaper energy or, frankly, fewer emissions.
0: Amy, that that touches on the old idea of sort of you know is there where's the money going to go after after this you know we suddenly uh, Washington D.C. governments around the 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 world are throwing trillions of dollars at coronavirus how's that going to affect the ability to invest in in cleaner energy and in, in infrastructure is all the money going to have to come from companies because the the public treasuries are all tapped out?
1: Yeah, well, just a quick comment in response to to the discussion just now. I would have to disagree somewhat about obviously the led company wants to you know sell itself in this what i'm calling this grave new world but i just i i think it's just a bit a step too far removed to try to make the argument that buildings need to be more energy efficient in this new world i mean i think people you know companies might be looking to invest less in their buildings and more in telework opportunities or you know new desks that allow social distancing i just i just think it's it's important to remember those of us who live and breathe the energy and climate space to remember that a lot of times most of the time and particularly this mo- moment in time the the public is just not thinking about these issues and i think it's important to keep that in mind and so so i just i think it's 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 a hard connection to make i think to talk about Ways to make commercial buildings more energy efficient when people might be going to them less, and there might be less of a reason to invest in that space. Um, and then going to your to your question uh, about uh, where the investment overall could come, I think in the next six to nine months, it's there's going to be a question mark in terms of whether or not uh, the U.S. Congress and other countries around the world really try to put a green veneer, and injection, inject some green. Um, spending into their stimulus plans. I tend to think in the short term, um, at least as long as President Trump is in the White House, that's, that remains quite unlikely. And I think, um, and even after that, let's say Joe Biden wins. I mean, by January 2021, hopefully the economy's doing better by then and all the big stimulus packages are over by then. But that all being said, I mean, I think uh, to to something that was said earlier. I mean, the IEA notes that renewable energy is actually the one type of energy that's expected to grow a little bit still this year, and that's because unlike a decade ago in the economic recession of 2008 and nine, there is a incredible growth in the renewable energy industry. And now that it exists all over the world, it's going to be the plant that stays running when you know countries and companies can shut down. Coal or natural gas plants. So I think that's a huge advantage to renewable energy, and I think that that's one reason why you'll continue to see investment in that space, even as the economy craters.
0: Jason Bordoff, how has this changed the domestic politics? You know, there's the the particularly in the in the U.S. Senate with with uh, states. There's we've always had energy exporting states, but now they do they have more muscle. And how does that connect to the international scene where you have senators trying to connect with Saudi Arabia, et cetera, because because of what's happening globally?
2: Yeah, well, you certainly see more states and a larger share of the economies in those states that feels pain when we see an oil collapse uh, like this, which is why many senators, Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, Alaska, put a lot of pressure, and, and President Trump put a lot of pressure on particularly Saudi Arabia and Russia to try to do what they could, which was something, but not enough, to try to uh, deal with this oil, 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 oil price collapse. Um, you also have more and more states as scott and other and others know really well that have a stake in renewable energy as well now too including in red states and so i just want to make one you know one observation on on the point that was just raised and, and what amy said about the iea showing renewables will do uh will actually grow this year partly that's because of how cheap they've become it's also because they get policy support they became that cheap because of policy support and they're first in the dispatch because usually you have policy that requires that and so I think there are some ways in which you could see behavioral changes, people enjoy working remotely, or maybe they want to be more energy efficient, that could come out of COVID-19 that could be positive. You could see stimulus or some other economic recovery that starts to address climate change. But we're not going to get anywhere close to the kind of what we just said we need to see, 8% declines year on year, taking one and a half or two degree warming seriously without much stronger policy that changes the incentives that businesses have and individuals have for how they produce and consume energy. And what I'm worried about is that history suggests that when economies are struggling and people feel pinched in their pocket, the ambition of environmental policy can often wane. And climate, we all know more than almost any other problem, requires global cooperation to solve because it is fundamentally a you know, collective action, free rider problem, it doesn't matter where a ton of CO2 comes from. And uh, unfortunately, we've already seen a retreat from global cooperation.
0: And that may get worse
2: after this pandemic as countries isolate themselves and put up walls more. I'm worried about that.
0: Julia Piper, you host the Political Climate Podcast. Uh, people often say there's, there's plenty of supply, policy supply. There's plenty of policies out there. There's, what is in short supply is the political will to enact them and move them forward. How do you see this crisis changing the politics of clean and brown energy in the, in the United States?
4: Well, I think the jobs is really where the political discussion lies in any meaningful way. And in March alone, the stats were that over 100,000 people lost their jobs in clean energy. Most of that's in efficiency. People can't get into homes and buildings, but 16,000 were in wind and solar. And that's just in the month of March alone. As far as I know, we don't have the numbers for April just yet. But that's across the nation. That affects every representative's district. So I do see there being some interest in getting some policy support on that front. As far as I know, infrastructure has been moved to the backseat in Congress right now, discussion of including that in a stimulus is is not front of mind for anyone, even though President Trump has actually expressed interest in it, and Democrats as well. Uh, Mitch McConnell's not so much. Uh, And then there, you know, it's interesting. There was some data that's coming out or just came out from Data for Progress. And it's showed that there is broad support across the country for things like supporting sustainable small farmers, things that are not top of mind for me usually, but that polled really high. Things like creating um, a national climate core to put people to work planting trees. Everyone remembers this planting millions and billions of trees concept. It actually pulls quite well. And it may not solve all of our climate issues, but it could put people back to work. So what will be interesting is whether anyone really has the appetite to take on those quirky and new and different kinds of policies are not traditionally what we're used to. More likely, we'll have a discussion around clean energy tax credits, whether or not that gets back on the table as part of a, a package to come. Uh, but I will note that there's something like $40 billion, I think, sitting in the Department of Energy right now that's not being spent, that could be used to support clean technologies of various kinds, could be used to put people back to work under various authorities. So that could be something that the government could look at without even Congress's input.
0: Scott Jacobs, though, there's a particular uh, orientation in this administration for that Title Seven money, that $40 billion, Uh
3: Right. Yeah, my understanding is that most of it is for clean coal and nuclear build out. And unfortunately, you know, it still depends on other actors being rational. Uh, uh, and other actors are rational and are not choosing to deploy technologies that make no economic sense, like clean coal currently and like some of the advanced nuclear for which that money has been earmarked you know, at the end of the day, we still have to go back to the economic proposition to the customer and deliver to the customer the most affordable, reliable energy. And uh, the things that this administration has chosen to embrace, like coal, do not offer the most affordable, reliable electricity anymore. They once did, but they do not any longer. And there's uh, no surprise as a result that even since 20. 16. When this administration came into the office, we've seen coal power generation drop by 30 to 50%, depending on sort of what time of year or what uh, geography you're talking about. It's been completely displaced half by gas and half by renewables. And for the same reason in both cases, they're cheaper.
0: We're going to go to our, our lightning round with our guests here today, Climate One, uh, starting with true or false questions uh, and then associations. So first, Julia Piper, true or false, you will ride the Los Angeles light rail again this year.
4: Oh, 100% true. Just looked at moving right next to it.
0: <laughs> Jason Bordoff, true or false, you will ride the New York subway again this year. I think that's true. True or false, Amy Harder, you are desperately waiting for olive oil to go under $2 a barrel.
1: I do need more olive oil. And that was another joke I saw on Twitter uh, when oil prices tanked. Somebody tweeted, let me know when olive oil is under $2 a barrel. And I, I pay good money for a good olive oil.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jason Bordoff, uh, when, true or false, when creating Columbia Energy Exchange podcast, you found inspiration from the Climate One podcast.
2: That's true, you know, I'm a regular listener,
0: especially when I'm cycling and, uh, and, and that's absolutely true. Cycling uh, safely, I hope. Uh, Julia Piper, true or false, when creating the Political Climate Podcast, you also found inspiration from the Climate One Podcast.
4: Absolutely. Took inspiration from anyone. It's a clou- It's a crowded space and Jason's podcast as well. Uh, everyone. And we tried to add a bipartisan element to it and have a new twist. And it's so great to see everyone really, you know, adding to this conversation.
0: Uh, Amy Harder, what comes to mind when I mention oil company pleased to have the COVID-19 pandemic declared an act of God so they can get out of contracts?
1: Not surprising that they would try to do that, but seems unlikely to succeed.
0: Uh, Scott Jacobs, what comes to mind when I say General Motors siding with the Trump administration against California's auto fuel efficiency standards?
3: Good luck in the Supreme Court.
0: Amy Harder, what comes to mind when I say cities that are banning cars on some streets and expanding sidewalks and bike lanes during the COVID-19 shutdown?
1: It's really nice. As a new cyclist myself, uh, here in Seattle, I have a bum foot, uh, so I can't do what I love to do, which is running, so I've been cycling places. It's been really nice not to have cars around, but I think in the U.S. in particular, that seems a temporary phenomenon. In Europe, I could see it lasting more.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the changing energy industry. Coming up, weaning ourselves off of fossil fuels, why crash diets don't always work.
1: The way to sustainably lose weight is to gradually eat healthier food and fewer calories. In the same vein, the the way to reduce emissions and get off fossil fuels is to gradually reduce them and increase renewables.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about the future of the energy industry in a post-pandemic world. My guests are Scott Jacobs of Generate Capital, Julia Piper of the Political Climate Podcast, Amy Harder, energy reporter with Axios, and Jason Bordoff of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Europe's Green Deal was launched shortly before the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. It's an ambitious plan to reshape agriculture, energy and transport, aiming for carbon neutrality by 2050. In the face of global fiscal stress caused by the pandemic, is it realistic or even possible for Europe to move forward on this? Scott Jacobs has been following their progress.
3: I mean, it's a great question, and it's always important to look outside the US for what other folks are doing when it comes to these climate questions. And I think what we've seen for the last 10 or so years is that in the US, we've polarized these questions, politicized these questions. The rest of the world has not. China thinks about it as an industrial policy question. And they think about it as a survival question. And in Europe, you've seen continued interventions to make their economy greener. And many of the incentives that they're thinking about putting in place in order to boost a recovery are tied to the greenness of the activity that is being um, you know, incentivized. So I, I think what we have in Europe is a very different political environment. And I don't worry about um, the fantasy, as you may have described it, for these environmental ministers. I think execution is still always a challenge everywhere and having the right incentives and the right mix of policy support versus, you know, private sector activity is is always a challenging question to confront. But in Europe, climate change, climate mitigation, clean energy, those are not political questions. They are scientific questions. They are economics questions. They are about the long-term survival of humanity and a public health question. And so I actually am very optimistic that the Europeans are going to continue to incentivize green ways of uh, recovering.
4: Can I just add, I spoke to um, the EU ambassador to the United States in recent days, and he underscored that they are committed. So they are publicly being proactive in their communication, saying this wasn't just a passing thing, we've actually integrated, as Scott mentioned, into our recovery plan, specifically grid digitization as well. Like they are getting specific and technical on how they want to see this stimulus work on the green front.
0: Julia Piper, you went to India recently, uh, and uh, I follow this uh, climate action tracker that comes out of the Potsdam Institute. And India and Costa Rica are among the few companies that are on a, a trajectory for a two degree Celsius and post-industrial warming. Uh, EU and Brazil are on a three degree track, and China, four degree, and US and Russia and Saudi Arabia even worse. So India is is a country that seems closer, relatively close to its Paris commitments. How is that going to be affected by this crisis?
4: Yeah, uh, really good question. Um, so like The global renewable energy sector There are supply chain disruptions And then there's just social distancing And issues that developers have And how they're going to build projects So there's definitely a delay In India's clean energy transition Which is crucial if the globe wants to meet Any of its climate goals India does rely disproportionately on coal today 70, upwards of 70%, maybe 90%, excuse me Of their power comes from coal Uh, So there will be a delay in the transition I went there thinking that it would be Sort of a setback story at the end of the year the, The government had allowed foreign investment into the coal mines there, which looked like an effort to shore up the industry. Flash forward a couple of months later, obviously, we're also amid coronavirus. There's been no interest from foreign investors to invest in Indian coal mines. So the government had to kind of say, OK, maybe this is not, not going to be as easy to support this sector as we thought. Meanwhile, renewable energy auction bids keep coming in lower and lower. SoftBank and others just won some showing how the cost declines are going. And then you saw the Modi government actually declare renewable energy a must-run resource. It's an essential service, even now amid coronavirus. So development is continuing in that country. And uh, yeah, we'll see what happens in future coal. But right now, coal is being backed off the system as cheaper renewables are being prioritized on the grid in India. So... There's historically, I think, a narrative around these countries moving slowly. I do think having reported on it, thinking there was a negative story, it is actually true that India is moving quite fast and doing quite a good job, even amid this coronavirus crisis and setting up itself policy-wise for success on that front. They might meet their 175 gigawatt renewable energy target in 2022 a little late, but they've, they're over 100 gigawatts in the pipeline now, and they could get there.
0: Jason Bordoff, you wrote a piece recently about how Saudi Arabia could be a surprise winner from all of this, emerge stronger economically, politically. Uh, why do you think that?
2: Well, it comes back to the point I think Amy mentioned uh, earlier on, which is that boom could follow bust. I mean, that's the history of the oil industry. So relative to a lot of other petrostates, Nigeria, Iraq, Venezuela, um, they are in a better fiscal position to make it through a year or two of low oil prices. And if, in fact, we do see demand recover, Quickly, and we've heard some view on this so far that that may be the case. You see, as I mentioned, shale falling, and it will come back, but not to the same extent. You have that a lot of oil supply being shut in around the world. The estimates I've seen around four million barrels a day might be semi-permanently damaged, meaning it never comes back, or it takes a lot of time and a lot of money to bring that supply back. All the large companies, Chevron, Exxon, et cetera, have slashed their capital capital uh, expenditure budgets. So if if supply lags demand, then we could see a price run up in the years ahead, which could work to the fiscal advantage of some of the large uh, oil producers. And then finally, it was kind of, you know, we mentioned a minute ago how the pre- President Trump was so uh, eager to see oil prices get some support. And there were lots of ideas thrown out about how he could do that. We could reconstitute the Texas Railroad Commission, which last put quotas in place a half century ago, or we could have import tariffs on, on oil. In the end, none of those things proved possible. Really, the only tool we had at our disposal was reaching out to Riyadh and to Moscow as well and trying through pushing and cajoling and and diplomacy to say, can you try to do something about this? And I think that's an important reminder that no matter how much oil we produce at home and whether we're importing or not, we are still vulnerable to the global oil markets and uh, and have to turn to OPEC to do something if we don't like oil prices being too high or too low. And if we want to change that and develop some measure of independence, we need to stop using so much oil in the first place, which, of course, we have to do for climate as well.
0: So the uh, energy dominance hasn't worked. And Jason, do you think we're going to be back to, to be more uh, import-reliant in the future? I do. I think we were just
2: on the cusp of being a net oil exporter. We import a lot and we export a lot, but on a net basis, it was about zero before this. We're going to see oil production in the U.S. fall several million barrels a day. Once the prices recover, it'll start growing again. But I do think demand is probably going to recover faster than supply. So we will still be a net importer
0: for for a while. Amy harder you've talked about how the bust leads to uh, the future boom, uh, hearing Jason talk about keeping oil on the ground, shutting it in, climate activists might be say great that 's what people uh Bill McKibben and others would say we have to keep it in the ground that 's where it should stay. what 's wrong with that thinking
1: yeah it's sort of ironic, I guess, to say that you know we 've gone this situation, the world that we 're in has gotten so crazy that. You know, the Trump administration's potential positions are now Bill McKibben's positions in in the very narrow sense that you know there were some considerations in the administration to pay companies to keep their oil in the ground and it's it's a little ironic for somebody who you know who's been covering both of these very um, polarizing sides of this debate for quite some time I think ultimately when it comes to the climate activism of this uh, it's it's missing the point point. and the analogy I use it's It's like, well, if you wanted to lose weight, why don't you just stop eating food? It's like, well, of course we can't just stop eating food. Like We need food for energy and to do things. The way to sustainably lose weight is to gradually eat healthier food and fewer calories. In the same vein, the the way to reduce emissions and get off fossil fuels is to gradually reduce them and increase renewables. And so this whole experience, this whole tragic crisis of the coronavirus is just showing to me and going back to what Julia said about um, what this shows about the, the drastic drop in emissions is just an extreme example of how hard it is to decarbonize the world, which is something I know Jason has said as well. So I think, although this seems like a very brief moment for climate activists to cheer, uh, it's, it's, it's not a sign of anything in the long term. In fact, we've already seen oil companies' stocks rise, prices are going up. In a really weird, twisted way, it's, it's almost like the uh, coronavirus could actually, as Jason said in a chat he and I had the other day, this could actually clear out some of the weaker links in the oil, oil industry and make the oil industry stronger and therefore last longer after this.
0: Do you think, you know, this, a lot of the large oil companies, Shell and BP, others say that they need policy to achieve their their stated goals. BP, Shell, now Total has said we want to have a, you know, decarbonize or net zero various kind of future. Are they putting their policy muscle where their mouth is on that? Are they lobbying? You know, only BP has left the, left the American Petroleum Institute. Um, are, they, are they advocating for the policy that they say they need to meet their own goals?
1: Well, I actually don't think any big oil company has left. API. Um, I think BP and Shell and Total have left the American fuel petrochemical okay. makers. Uh, um, right, the they the stay finest. in
0: API. Right. Okay. Right. Thanks.
1: So API is definitely uh, likely going to keep all of its members from a climate perspective. I don't see any of them defecting because of that. Um, I do think for now, it's mostly rhetoric and not that much lobbying action. A lot of these companies, including ExxonMobil, have actually put uh, a million or two dollars into a lobbying campaign to get a carbon tax um, through Congress. That whole campaign has really um, got put on the back burner um, given the COVID crisis. I think what I'm going to be looking for is in a crisis moment like what we're in now, will these oil companies choose to prioritize pushing action on climate change? Because when you go to Congress, when a, when a company lobbies Congress, there's always a litany of things that they need to talk to any member of Congress or the administration about. So maybe it's the trade battles, maybe it's ethanol wars. And usually climate change, sure, BP and Shell and Exxon say they support a carbon tax, but do they really uh, prioritize it when they go knocking on the doors? And so far, the answer has been no. And I think as we go through this crisis and recovery mode, will they knock on doors to ask for a green recovery. So far, I haven't seen it. And that's something that I'll be asking as well.
4: I think we also have to note that there have been efforts as those national ones happen about a carbon pricing scheme. Oil companies have lobbied in other states against carbon pricing, like in Washington state. Um, And we should also note that these uh, proposals often include something else like um, removal from or a reduction in the risk of of future regulation. And so it's a trade-off. And so a business person's always going to take a known risk of a market-based pricing scheme over some future regulation that they don't know what impact it's going to have on their business. So if they could secure that win, they might be appealing. And there's a valid discussion to be had there, but I just want to note it's not usually just a carbon pricing uh, opportunity on its own that these oil companies are supporting.
0: Which leads to a question we have from YouTube. Uh, Colleen Cradell asks, in the U.S., the response to COVID-19 has been largely led by governors. What prospects are there for state leadership on climate change coming out of this crisis. Jason Bordoff, I see you nodding there. Uh, Yeah, Scott should comment on it, too. I mean, I think there's a huge opportunity there, and we're already
2: seeing it. We're seeing it, obviously, in California, my own state of New York. Uh, States are are stepping forward and putting in place, in some states, not all, pretty uh, strong measures to help support clean energy, set ambitious goals by which they need to decarbonize. We need a lot more of that. The challenge is, you know, it's, we, we mentioned a minute ago how important it is to coordinate at the multinational level because emissions can leak into other uh, countries and it doesn't matter where a ton of CO2 comes from. That's even harder at the state level. So I think um, we do, There's some emissions that states and cities have control over. I mean, Scott, we, we talked about in the video you showed, you know, reducing emissions in buildings. I think it's great if people try to take the leadership to do that, but you need policy to do that. You need building standards. You need a price on carbon. You need something else. So sometimes states and cities are a good place to do that, but there are a lot of things that really you need federal, if not global, coordinated action to address. Scott Jacobs?
3: Yeah, while I agree that global coordination is really the only way we're going to get the scale of the solution to meet the scale of the problem, I don't think there's anything particularly unique about the COVID induced environment about how states step up and lead, especially when it comes to energy policy. We have seen for the last 15 years states stepping up and leading, and their policies driving much more behavior change. Investment change and decarbonization than anything at the federal level, and that continues to be the case today. It will be likely the case post-COVID. You know, energy, especially from an electricity standpoint, is regulated at a local level. Um, you know, transportation fuels, different story. Uh, building standards, both right. We saw California take a very progressive building standard to all new buildings that need to be now net zero and net zero carbon. Um, start, you know, starting January 1st of this year. That's far and away more aggressive than anything we ever heard about the even Obama administration trying to do at a federal level. So it's a mix of local, state, federal, and international policies that will help us move forward. But it's also important to remember that the fundamental economics of the decarbonized stuff is increasingly attractive. It is already better in many cases than the carbonized stuff. And the bigger challenge, which I think we all haven't really addressed, but we're talking about uh, in, in certain ways, is the stock, the actual capital stock of the world, and the stock of carbon already in the atmosphere. Those are the issues. It's not really what we do in 2021 with new energy capacity builds or new regulations on farming or food production or any of that. It's what do we do with all this stuff that's already here, both in the atmosphere and in the built environment and infrastructure, that's much harder to solve and much bigger problem for climate change. But but if
2: I could just say, tell me if you agree, Scott, it is true that clean energy wins economically in the power sector. And electricity is about 20% of global final energy demand. So there's a lot of stuff beyond electricity. And we can electrify some of that. Not going to electrify all of it Uh, because there are things that are hard to electrify. And so we're going to need a pretty broad set of solutions, which might include hydrogen, carbon capture, and direct air capture and various other things uh, to try to capture all the rest.
4: And Wood Mackenzie actually notes, I think, in their latest analysis that EV sales this year, I believe, will be down 43%. Because of these disruptions to supply chains and just consumer appetite, et cetera, there will be a hit to that segment. So there'll be even a building back up to the trajectory that these technologies had before. Um, and then there's another thing I love that I think Amy wrote was about, you have your pasta and your salad on the side. And so far, we've been in this additive situation. We're just adding salad, but we haven't really taken away our pasta portion yet. Uh, so I think that's just an awesome way of framing it. So we've had to to you, Amy. I, I've, I've had to borrow that a few times. Well, that's <laughs> what
1: I do when I try to be healthy. I'm like, I'm just going to add a salad on top of this big pile, pile of pasta and then I'm going to be healthier. It's like, well, not really. If the purpose is to to lose weight or to transition. I need to take off a quarter of the pasta and add, you know, half a salad.
0: You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about the future of energy from fossil fuels to renewables. I'm Greg Dalton. Joining me from their homes today were Amy Harder, energy reporter for Axios, Jason Bordoff, founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, Scott Jacobs, CEO and co-founder of Generate Capital, and Julia Piper, the host and producer of the Political Climate Podcast. To hear more Climate One conversation, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major platforms. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.